big banks. The impossible takes two days and miracles take three. Where you've got so many different departments and divisions. Shaping investors' expectations. Money for nothing. Good morning, hello, and welcome to the Tuesday, 10th of February edition of Money for Nothing. And I'm Richard Harris. Your business news headlines for the day. Questions to be asked in the UK Parliament as allegations re-emerge that HSBC assisted some of their less scrupulous clients to avoid and evade tax. Qualcomm, the US mobile phone chipmaker, has agreed to settle a dispute with the Chinese regulators under the country's anti-monopoly law for US dollars 975 million. And Bond Connect might be next. The mainland's bond clearing house is looking at linking the trading of Hong Kong and Chinese bonds in the same way that the Stock Connect has done for equities. In other news, Microsoft has launched an $11 billion US dollar bond, the 10th largest of all time. The offering has attracted very strong interest because it's one of the few corporates around with a AAA rating. And not surprisingly, after the tourist overcrowding of Chun Moon at the weekend, tourist numbers grew 12% last year, despite Occupy Central, but spending dropped 2% for the first time in a decade. Now, this Tuesday, we have a security and fraud theme for you. And we have, following the news of the alleged Bitcoin fraud in Hong Kong yesterday, we've got Arthur Hayes from BitMEX to explain the latest behind the Bitcoin phenomenon that has so many supporters and detractors. Toby Bland of VIP will be speaking to us on ETFs or exchange-traded funds and how they've expanded the choice for the investor in the street. And do you email? Yes, you do. If so, you may be a target for fraud through your email messages. Richard Hudson of Deacons joins us to wave the red flags. And our regular guest host is a man whose studies of economics knows no bounds, the good doctor, Enzio van Fahl. Good morning, Enzio. Richard. Uh, Enzio, as a classical economist, do you have any bitcoins jangling in your cyber pockets? No, I never understood the concept, and I was always told if you're too dumb to understand, then be stupid and don't invest. I think I'm a bit like that with a foreign exchange. Oh, well, that's something different. You can see the coins. <laughs> Good. <laughs> right, a bag full of computer disks stolen from HSBC years ago has been forensically analysed by the Washington-based International Consortium of Investigative Journalists. The row is not new. It broke out in 2007 when the disaffected employee ran off with internal customer data and promptly sold it to the tax authorities of various Euro nations. A transaction that on both sides itself was questioned for its probity. Many examples refer to customers from some of the acquisitions made by HSBC, which had brought clients into the bank. The story has been taken up in several places, not least in the UK Parliament, which has recently been on a witch hunt for tax avoiders, let alone evaders, as political parties square up for the general election this year. The embarrassment follows that of other major banks and may well reopen ongoing uh, and also closed investigations with other regulators, such as the US Department of Justice, who are looking at a large number of banks that allegedly help clients avoid US taxes. Enzio, this um, issue with HSBC, it's a storm in a cowbell, isn't it? It's uh, seven or eight years old. No, I used to be a US citizen and left, of course, because I'm a born German. That was the only reason. And... Um, I think that you don't mess with the IRS. I think it's more than a storm in a cow belly. The awful thing is that the Americans are yet again telling everybody else what to do, but when foreign banks ask for a return of the favor and say, could you, by the way, tell us who's evading taxes on our side, the Americans are saying, oh, that's different, we can't help out. Isn't the danger, though, that other regulators around the world are going to pick up this 
this theme of, uh, well, the banks are there, they've been naughty, and, hey, maybe we can find them. Well, I think there's a lot of regulatory imperialism going on, and it's only going to worsen because, of course, every regulator wants to justify his job with those charts going to the top in showing, well, I've, I've had more fraud cases that I've investigated this year. So, yeah, it's a growth industry, sadly. That's why compliance is such a big deal with, with the headhunters. Hmm. Well, another story uh, on a similar topic, Qualcomm, the U.S. mobile phone chip maker, which has been having a row with the Chinese uh, authorities, has agreed to settle a dispute under the country's anti-monopoly law for 975 million U.S. dollars. That's about six and a half billion Hong Kong dollars. Take a leaf out of the U.S. regulator's book, China's National Development and Reform Commission stipulated a fine and requirements to fix competitive rates for smartphone makers to license the technology. The row had threatened the chipmaker's growth in the largest mobile market in the world. It also gives a sign on how other uh, 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 non-Chinese companies uh, may be facing regulators in China and how to deal with them in the future. Markets were slightly down yesterday as the possibility of earlier interest rate rises and the European troubles weighed on prices. The S&P index fell half a percent to 2047. But Adam Parker, who's the chief U.S. strategist of Morgan Stanley, remains bullish. Pretty bullish on, on the U.S. equity market because I think the earnings expectations have really come down very sharply. Um, typically, analysts are too optimistic at this time of year and their numbers have to come down. This could be the first time ever, the 40th year, 2015, 40th year of forward earnings data. I think it's the first time ever where you're not in a recession recovery where the annual assessments are actually too low. So he thinks that the analysts will be surprised by the strength of company earnings this year. And that'll be underpinned by continued growth. The euro stocks ended down 1.5% at uh, 3,347, with much of the pressure from the German DAX, which lost 1.7% to end at 10,664. Hong Kong will open this morning at 24,521, having dipped by 0.6% yesterday, while Chinese stocks rose for the first time in four days as financial shares benefited from a rumour that equity options trading might start in the mainland. The Shanghai Composite Index put on 0.6% to end at 3,095, brushing off yesterday's weak trade figures. Now, people are starting to look at China a little bit differently. Mark Tinker of Axa Framlington in Hong Kong thinks that China's changed. China has changed. We need to think of it now as a, a developed economy. I mean, there are parts of it that are still very developing. There's, there's a big developed economy. It's got 300 million people in their middle class, which is the size of Europe, and they want different things. They bought more iPhones than they bought in the US. And so all of our indicators need to look at China like we look at the US now. We need to look at consumers' expenditure. We need to look at uh, surveys of how people are spending their money. And now he gives us a glimpse into the future for investors in China. Is that in five years' time, your portfolio is going to have 50% of your things that don't even exist right now, and they'll all be Chinese. It'll be infrastructure bonds, it'll be mm. local government bonds, it'll be the restructured SOE convertible debt, whatever it is. It's all, you've, got to, you've got to wait, we've got to be patient, but there's an enormous amount of change coming down the line. Enzio, should we be thinking blue sky in China about the kind of things we might be investing in a few years' time? I think smoggy sky... For a couple of reasons. Um, one is for the obvious reason with the, with the smog, but also I think that there will never be the rule of law in China, and thus it would be stupid to say until that happens because I don't think it will happen when he says there will be th- thousands of things that are Chinese that nobody's ever seen. You're damn right because they will have all been stolen from the U.S. Patent Office. So um, Some mistake, surely. Yes. 
Yes, exactly. So I'm somewhat acerbic on this thing that it's all wonderful going in. I do uh, think there's a political mandate to grow, but that doesn't mean that it's, it's all going to be wonderful going forward. Mm, I hate it when you sit on the fence ends, yeah. <laughs> the dollar paused for Brest, leaving most currencies unchanged. The euro is at 113, the yen at 119, and sterling is printing $152 to the pound. Oil and gold markets were largely unmoved. Adam Parker at Morgan Stanley is looking at catching the falling knife. I think it's a contrarian call a little bit here. Um, and so I just make two points on this. One, we're not propagating the oil bet all the way th- through the portfolio, right? We're overweight discretionary, which benefits from, from, from lower oil. We're underweight industrials because we don't think the energy capex has been cut enough through those industrial estimates. But the reason for recommending energy is really because um, uh, three points. One, the stocks are cyclical. Most people, including people on this channel, not necessarily working here, but on your network, were bullish or constructive at 100% last June. Many of them are bearish below 50, and I know the stocks are cyclical. I can show you that every time they've underperformed this much, they subsequently outperform six months later. Two, I know I have to buy them early. The stocks typically bottom two to three months before the earnings revisions bottom, and we've just seen estimates get cut a ton. So probably the incremental estimate reductions will be pretty benign. And then three, the stocks are cheap on price to book and EV to EBITDA, which historically were the two most effective metrics for predicting subsequent returns. Well, he's not the only one with that idea. Now, the sudden closure of a Bitcoin trading company called MyCoin yesterday in Hong Kong uh, may have left 3,000 local investors out of pocket to the tune of $3 billion. Investors were attracted by offering high returns and prizes. Bitcoin is an internet-based digital currency that, after an enormous rise some years ago, was one of the worst-performing assets last year, plummeting from $1,124 in November 2013 to as low as 221 this morning. But enough of that. For in Bitcoin's corner stands Arthur Hayes, director of BitMEX, Bitcoin Merchant Card Exchange, and with a background in trading and market making with major banks. Uh, good morning, Arthur. Hello. Um, Arthur, um, Bitcoin, is it, uh, are we seeing the end of it now or where do you see on it? I don't think we've seen the end of it. What we've seen is a massive price drop after a big speculative bubble. So just like any other asset, you have to have a time for the market to settle, uh, and then the fundamentals will take it higher, in my view. And tell me about BitMEX, uh, Bitcoin Mercantile Exchange. Has that got a different business model to a number of the other Bitcoin firms around? So basically, we're a derivatives exchange that offers futures and options on Bitcoin versus other fiat currencies and cryptocurrencies. So we're most like uh, a derivatives exchange that you would see that trades euros as a B500 or any other financial asset. So you're not looking at Bitcoin necessarily physically. You're looking at uh, derivatives. Are you on the price? Yes. So I, I view it as another financial asset in the portfolio of um, financial assets that you have globally. Now, Arthur, just on the recent hiatus that we've had, is that actually Bitcoin-related? No, it's a classical Ponzi scheme. Um, People got greedy and saw they were guaranteed a certain return, and obviously that didn't turn out to be the fact. Basically, it looked as if what they were doing was asking people to, when they put their money in, to try and attract other people and paying them on the basis of that. So it's a classic pyramid scheme. Yes. How is it that people in the market didn't see this. Shouldn't people like yourselves be looking to try and police the bad guys out of a market you're looking to develop? Well, um, we have frequent meetups here in Hong Kong and globally lots of the Bitcoin community meet on a frequent basis and companies like these don't come to meet the community because they're obviously scammers and uh, they'd be exposed for what they are. So do you, I mean, so this is just going to be an unending process of these Ponzi schemes. Do you think there'll be more of them coming through now? 
in frequency. Um, I think just like any other asset, um, because Bitcoin is new and there's a lot of technological hype, people kind of lose sense of common sense. And uh, it could just as easily happen with Hong Kong dollars or U.S. dollars, and it has in the past. And Arthur, for those people looking to perhaps get interested in, in Bitcoin, obviously it's come down a lot. Where do you think it's going now? Uh, I think this year it'll probably stabilize around three hundred dollars, and then two thousand and sixteen they'll resume uh, the bull market. Great. Well, thank you very much, Arthur, for coming in to talk to us about Bitcoin. That's Arthur Hayes, who's the CEO of Bitmex. It's eight sixteen. Now, exchange-traded funds are a growing investment vehicle. They've transformed the way investors put money into the market, similar to mutual funds as they're collective vehicles that pool people's money to invest in a certain theme or market. But they do have low costs and they can be traded like a share. Recently, however, an explosion of products has made it quite complex, not only in number, but also in terms of complexity. And to lead us through the jungle, we have Tobias Blander, former colleague of mine and now CEO of Enhanced Investment Products, to lead us through. Good morning, Toby. Hey, Richard. Well, what are the current markets like for ETFs? Um, I think the, the, the global market is, is, is obviously going from strength to strength. Um, there was just a report out from McKinsey saying that the U.S. market will will uh, be at a 20% household concentration uh, of ETFs versus mutual funds um, in the next two years, which is, which is very impressive. It's gone from 10 to 20% in five years. And where's the growth really come from? I mean, what's grabbing people? I think it's a, um, it's a combination of uh, choice. So this is allowing household investors or retail investors now to invest in fixed income uh, directly through ETFs. They can choose their durations. Uh, on the equity side, they can choose different countries um, and, and, and also long and short. And it's a spectrum of investment that the I think the household community did not have access to historically. Toby, for many of us who don't or for many people who perhaps don't quite know what an ETF is, where, does, where do ETFs fit into a normal investor's portfolio? I think um, there's two ways to look at it. One is, is, is tactical. Um, so if you want to take a particular bet on, a, on gold or you want to take a bet on a particular market, um, then that's, that's the same as, as taking on a, a stock bet. The other side is, is asset allocation, um, so very close to a mutual fund, but with the advantages of an exchange-traded fund. So it's liquid, uh, daily transparent, uh, and obviously, as Richard says, it's, it's, it's very cost-effective. So broadly, the idea is if you have an idea, what you look around is for an ETF to really – take advantage of that to give you the exposure to that idea, be it uh, gold, be it European markets, um, uh, or be it some alternative arenas? Exactly. I think, I think this, the access is, is, is a very strong and powerful component to exchange-traded funds. So you could take the community at the moment and think the world is going to collapse and they're all being able to buy gold and silver ETFs, um, which is something they couldn't have done historically. Toby, when you say buy and sell, that's interesting. A lot of people get to buy things, but then when it comes to the selling department, the sort of closed sign seems to be up there. What I mean by that is that how liquid are these ETFs? How does a person who's bought an ETF know that this thing is liquid, that they can actually trade it? What's sort of the key question to ask? Well, I should probably be asking Arthur that question. He used to be a market maker on our products. Um, the answer is for the ETFs is under the SFC, they have to be liquid in the sense of you have to be able to redeem on a daily basis. 
Um, is that, that trading volume? The trading volume you can also you can also trade on market. So there's two there's two ways to to enter and exit. One is on screen. Um, so you can just buy and sell it exactly the same as a stock, Hang Seng Bank, etc. Or you can apply to redeem it the same as a mutual fund, but the, the difference is it's same day and there's very little charges. I suppose what we're saying is it's relatively easy to buy an ETF that may, say, be looking at the U.S. market. But if somebody has an ETF that really looks at a very specific area, it becomes much more difficult. But then on the other hand, I guess what you're, what you're looking at is is that um, if you want to take an exposure to something that's a very narrow area of the market, maybe you're less worried that you can't sell it. I think with the ETF, you, you can always sell it. I mean, that's the point here is, is you don't see discounts in ETFs of any, any substantial amounts because they are redeemable. So they're open-ended daily. I think the liquidity, as I say, is, is, is a bit of a misnomer. I mean, over 50% of the volume in Europe is traded off-market. So the screen, the screen prices are valid, um, and you can always trade those. But as I say, you can always trade, uh, you know, if you want to get out, you can redeem at any time, and that's normally an NAV uh, or just a slight discount. But it, it definitely has um, the ability to be liquid, and that, that defined by the SFC. So you can't have an illiquid asset inside an ETF in, in Hong Kong. So what's the key question that people wanting to buy an ETF, what do they, when they're choosing an ETF, what's the key thing that they have to ask themselves when they want to buy an ETF? What's, what's the key question? Is it liquid? Uh, is it big? Um, is it not sort of, is it going to go up or down? That's kind of silly. But I mean, what's the key thing? What, what's the key criteria when you're choosing an ETF as a normal man on the street? I think the first thing is your investment decision. So, you know, going back to this key theme of asset allocation. So you obviously want to own that that asset. So say, you know, you, you want to own Thailand. Then once you've made that decision, you want to make sure your ETF tracks the market correctly. So um, the two components I would be looking at in the ETF selection is tracking and cost. Okay, tracking, index tracking. Yeah, tracking okay, the index. Yeah. Toby, are there any new strategies coming down the line? We saw initially a lot of country funds. Then we saw a lot of sector uh, ideas. Uh, what's, what's new out there? Um, well, the new one, is, I think, is fixed income is coming thick and fast. Um, this is going to be a new, really good um, product for, the, for, for, for investors. This is where they can access different um, parcels of fixed income in an ETF so they can buy and sell it daily. That's very difficult for an investor to do normally. You have to have $250,000 to buy and sell an individual bond normally. So this will now give people the access into the fixed income market. Um, CSOPs come out with products. I know there's five or six in the pipeline. So I think fixed income is the next big thing in, in the Hong Kong market. Uh, and what sort of products are you looking at yourself with EIP? Uh, we're under we're under a no disclosure on that. Um, um, we are we are we've got some good products coming up. They should be um, they should be announced next month, um, and um, you know those those have a variety of flavors, which I think is again is very interesting to the retail community at the moment. Why is there so little uptake in Asia with ETFs? I think that's a really really good question. the um, The reality situation is. Uh, investors have been traditionally using mutual funds, which have a front-end fee and a, and, a, and a redemption fee. And so advisors and private banks are persuaded normally to to stick to selling mutual funds because there is commission involved. Um, and therefore, recommendation has, has, has been um, firmly in the mutual fund camp. There's no commission paid around ETFs. So 
going forward, the SFC, I know, are working on reducing that um, upfront fees and making sure that all fees are transparent um, with the mutual fund industry. And when this happened in, in America about 12 or 15 years ago, that was really the birth of the liquidity of the ETFs, and, and from there it never looked back. So I think once uh, financial advisors are incentivized the same as their clients in the sense that they share in the they share in the performance of their portfolios, then ETFs will be a great choice because obviously they're low cost and, uh, and liquid. And then we have to get uh, both the market and the clients to uh, be convinced to pay their advisors a fee uh, rather than uh, do survive on the commission from the products. Yeah, and I think that's a really healthy, a really healthy uh, step forward because obviously then it's very transparent. And I think as a financial consultant, you are then, um, you know, extreme. If you're good at your job, then then you know you're going to get rewarded for it. And I think that uh, it'll make sure your your investment decisions are very um, neutral. Well, but this is what we do at Private Capital, by the way, is to provide this commission-free discretionary asset management, and that's why I'm pushing the ETS because I think it's it's the way forward. Thanks for getting that uh, ad in there, Enzio. <laughs> My Any- boss was listening. A- anyway, Toby, thanks very much for coming in. Toby Bland, CEO of Enhanced Investment Products, uh, based in Hong Kong. In the past, we could only watch on TV. In the past, we did not take part in making the decision. In the past, only 1,200 people voted. In 2017, 5 million people can take part through one person, one vote. 2017 Seize the opportunity. The public consultation on the method for selecting the chief executive by universal suffrage is now underway. Please give your views by March 7. Check out 2017.gov.hk. Well, cybercrime is growing. Uh, It seems like nobody is safe. Virtually every major company has been targeted. And in some cases, hackers have had spectacular success in terms of hacking into companies like Sony, Target and eBay. Just last week, U.S. healthcare firm Anthem lost control over personal information that could have exposed nearly 40 million members. It's estimated that the hacking is costing the global economy more than 400 billion U.S. dollars a year. But it doesn't stop at hacking of databases. It can extend to emails as well. And our expert today is Richard Hudson, who's a partner at uh, Deacons, the solicitors, who specializes in fraud investigation. Good morning, Richard. Good morning. Thanks for coming on the show. Um, Tell us a little bit about some of the scams and frauds that can occur through emails as opposed to the the web itself. Well, we're seeing... um a couple of new frauds over the last few years which uh, utilize email quite effectively. First of all, you have people who impersonate CEOs and uh, senior employees of medium-sized companies, really, not large or small companies, and they email um, account departments and ask for transfers to be made for secret uh, projects, and they follow up with phone calls where they impersonate these people. Medium-sized companies, so the account staff won't necessarily know them personally. And they've been quite effective in getting money transferred to accounts and then they'll come back and seek more money, the next tranche for the secret project and so on. And this is a scam that's perpetrated by gangs in Europe and the money comes through Hong Kong um, as part of a waste station. Uh, it sits in a bank here, which is where we get chance to get hold of it, hopefully, or the police. When you say sits in Hong Kong, does that mean we're a magnet for this kind of unscrupulous activity? I wouldn't say we're a magnet so much in the sense that people aren't coming here because our um, 
controls a lax or anything like that. I think that um, this is used because it's an international banking centre. Uh, the banks are quite sophisticated. You can have electronic banking. You can move money quite quickly. And also, um, a lot of the money flows into the PRC, and I think that the perception is from these criminal gangs it's, it's an easy way station to do that through. And what can people do to protect themselves? Well, at a corporate level, um, better education of your staff. Um, um, you can do better due diligence. If you have emails from um, people who impersonate chief executives, you need to look very closely at the addresses to see whether it's actually that person. Don't let people use Gmail accounts or Hotmail or Yahoo accounts to send corporate emails. And you should have two people with signing or transferring authority for money, because once you have one, um, that could be a big problem. Richard, what's the single biggest issue in the cybercrime sort of world? The single biggest problem um, that's faced is the fact that this can happen very quickly. Money can be moved around very quickly. Um, With the best will in the world, it takes time to put together court applications to freeze money. It can even take time to speak to the police to get them to act. And because you can move money electronically, the money can have vanished by the time you get there. Richard, what what do you do if you actually lose money? What's the you, you suddenly find you've been scammed? What's the next step? Well, I always say that there are four people that you should call. Um, the first two should be your bank, obviously, because it may be that um, the transfer can be stopped, or they can speak to the bank who's received the money to stop it there. You should also speak to the police because they have power um, to send what's called a letter of no consent to freeze the account, and you should also call. Your Deacons. lawyer, <laughs> Deacons, Deacons, yes, no, 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 no. and also your insurers. <laughs> this is a non-commercial station. Indeed. <laughs> well, great. Well, thanks very much, Rich. I really appreciate you coming on today. That's Richard Hudson, partner at uh, Deacon Solicitors. Uh, NCO, just um, in uh, two or three words, uh, we heard Alan Greenspan yesterday saying that he was a Grexit man. He believed Greek was going to exit. How about you? Well, I would go with Mao Tonga, one of them who said, all under heaven is chaos, the situation is truly excellent. We've got the meetings. We've got two emergency Eurogroup meetings um, on Wednesday, and then we also have the Ukraine meeting on Wednesday. So I think it's all wonderful chaos that's Great. going on. Thanks, there will be Brexit. NCO, well, not much chaos in the markets opening this morning. They're all down around half a percent. Uh, the Nikkei's at 17,634, and the Australian uh, market is down 5,744, or both down around half a percent. Well, thank you very much for listening to Money for Nothing this morning. Just be go, we'll, before we go, we'll have the weather. It will be fine, uh, rather cool in the morning, dry with some haze during the day. The maximum temperature will be around 18 degrees with moderate easterly winds. The outlook will be mainly fine during the day and uh, temperatures will rise progressively in the next few days. Which is fortunate because at the moment the temperature at the Hong Kong Observatory is 13 degrees and the relative humidity is 75%. And now the news read by Samantha Butler. President Obama has said the United States is considering supplying weapons to the Ukrainian government to help it defend itself against Russian-backed separatists in the east of the country. Mr Obama was speaking after talks with German Chancellor Angela Merkel at the White House. The BBC's Barbara Pletusha reports from Washington. President Obama said he was awaiting the outcome of a peace initiative led by Angela Merkel. If it failed, he said, he would take steps to increase the cost of the conflict for Russia, including the possibility of sending weapons to help the Ukrainian army defend itself against the Russian-backed rebels. 
Ms. Merkel has made clear she fears this would lead to an escalation, but she said whatever Mr. Obama decided, the transatlantic alliance would remain solid. Both accused Russia of violating Ukraine's borders and said they were committed to protecting the principle of territorial integrity, which was crucial, said the Chancellor, to preserving the European peaceful order. The Greek Prime Minister Alexis Tsipras says he believes a compromise will be reached in the coming days that will ensure Greece remains in the Eurozone. His government is trying to get emergency funding. Here's the BBC's Chris Morris. Speaking during a trip to Vienna, Mr Tsipras said his government had no intention of breaking with its European partners. The history of the European Union is one of disagreement and conflict, followed by a mutually beneficial compromise. This is what I believe will happen in this case too. But time is of the essence. Mr Tsipras wants what he calls a bridging agreement, temporary financing while a new way of working is agreed. If he doesn't get one, the government will soon run out of money. The Malaysian opposition leader Anwar Ibrahim is due to find out today whether he'll go to jail on a charge.